Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, the Razor Guide Pack is seven blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip and zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. Welcome to the Huntivore Podcast, powered by Sportsman's Empire, where we celebrate the hunting and fishing lifestyle through the utilization and consumption of our wild game. No egos. Fork in hand, beer in the other. No status. A piece of red meat on a hot grill and turn it into a burnt offering. Just catch it, cut it, cook it. This is episode 127, Jesse Griffiths, Harvest Preservation and Wild Hawks. On this episode of Hunt of Boar, Nick is joined by Jesse Griffiths, author, restaurant owner, and champion of local eating. This episode jumps right into seasonal food preparation and preservation, so heads up gardeners. And of course, we're going to pick the brain of the author who wrote The Hog Book. Nick is going to keep enjoying his wild hogs, and Jesse's going to help him with a few tips. A lot to harvest and hold on to on this episode of Hunt of Boar. Well, hey, folks, another beautiful afternoon here in Michigan coming at you. Uh, yeah, we're recording on a Tuesday, but it is definitely a Thursday that you are hearing this. That's my new home here on the Sportsman's Empire is on Thursdays, so Thirsty Thursday. Um, normally, I would have something really nice going on a Thursday, but since it's Tuesday, I've got sparkling water. But uh, I had a sour this past weekend, and I tell you, if anything hits the spot for me during the middle of summer, through in that hot wave, through in a heat wave, I'm definitely going to want to go with a sour beer. I had a coconut strawberry this past weekend, and man, I'm still thinking about pulling that off the tap. That was such a good one out of a local brewery. Um, Today, we have a huge guest Someone who is a culinary mastermind. He is a James Beard award-winning author and has just a huge following down in the southern part of the United States. I am joined with Jesse Griffiths today. Jesse, thank you so much for coming on this afternoon. Uh, I forgot to ask if you uh, also like to, to drink a cocktail here and then. Um, what... What's a great summer treat that you would be looking forward to as far as a cocktail? As far as a cocktail? Hmm. I mean, in my part of the world, that's a margarita or, or one of the variations uh, upon a margarita, probably made with mezcal or something. But, uh, yeah, I think it's some lime juice, some ice, some salt, and some super strong booze from the desert. Sounds pretty good. Excellent, excellent. I think, yeah. Like as far as summer goes, a good margarita. Well, for you guys, it's warm all the time, so a margarita fits any time. 
Um, it's it's generally appropriate here, yeah. But it's it's especially warm here right now. I don't I don't really appreciate you talking about how nice it is up there because it's <laughs> it's terrible here. It's terrible. It's it's kind of hellish out there right now. I think we're we're hitting 108 today with some extreme humidity. So um, not going to go and do anything outdoors. Sounds good. Not even a, a shady porch will do it. Yeah, you were talking about the temps and the conditions down there. 108. Oh, I. Yeah, here in the north, we can't imagine that. I can share with you the humidity, but as far as that, we were, we are not t- touching the temperatures that you guys are uh, are doing. And so, yeah, you're telling me like just hunker down inside. That's pretty much what you guys can do this time of year. Um, or you're writing menus probably for your uh, for your restaurant. Dia Due is your. Did I say that correctly, or I already screwed it up, didn't I? That is pretty close. It's pretty die, just die, die, do a, yeah, die, do a. Um, that is a restaurant uh, that you yourself have started, and that's been on my list. Uh, that if I do get in that neck of the woods, I have to come down. Um, I touched Texas this past spring. I went on a hog hunt in Oklahoma. We will get into that here in just a little bit, but I was still a good five hours from even getting a chance to come and uh, be at your restaurant. I'm sure a lot of people have heard of of your place where you do your work there. It's It focuses a lot on items, or excuse me, or ingredients that you are finding locally. And that is a thing that I was really excited about when I first was getting into, uh, getting into food was being able to find stuff locally grown, being able to find stuff that my neighbors, my neighboring ranchers, they were raising uh, cattle or poultry or whatever it may be. And we've given the term locavore to that, that whole style of, of basically trying to acquire food. And you've done that with your restaurant where you are finding everything that you can down there in South Texas. And granted, um, South Texas is a cornucopia of amazing things that you can find. How has how has that influenced your style of cooking? Or should I say, has that been something you've always been excited about as far as being someone who's bringing that locavore mindset to your restaurant? Well, I've, I've been with, fascinated with, uh, with sourcing locally. Uh, for a long time. I mean, to say that it's any kind of novel idea would be would be kind of silly because it's probably one of the oldest ideas, if not the oldest. It's definitely one of the top two oldest ideas ever. Um, it's just eating what you can find around you. The next would be probably procreation. Um, so I, I think that, I mean, it's been so long that, that we've been operating the restaurant or the business that it just feels kind of natural at this point. Uh, so uh, I do a started in 2006 so we're in year 17 of operations at this point uh opened the restaurant the brick and mortar restaurant in 2014 so we're coming up on our next year will be our 10th anniversary there and so you know sourcing everything like that just feels like i said pretty natural at this point it's also gotten a lot easier in that say 2006 there's a couple little ragtag farmers markets uh selling a few things here and there and getting a chicken was very difficult uh, you know, I had to drive to a farm and talk to a guy and, you know, it was, it was, it was really 
much more, uh, much harder than it is now where there's a lot of like uh, aggregators and middlemen that, that do all kinds of deliveries and, and make it a lot easier to source local food. So if I need a chicken, I can probably have 80 to 100 chickens at the restaurant tomorrow at this point. Um, there's also a lot more farms that really proliferated. And just the, the whole system has kind of come up uh, at the same rate and during the same time period that we have. So it's, it's a lot easier now, um, but we are very strict about it. Like if you come in, I always like to put it in the context of iced tea, which is, uh, I don't know, culturally what kind of weight iced tea has up there. But here it's a big deal. Unsweet, but so that's here and there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that we yeah we don't we don't mess well we kind of mess with that but anyway uh, so our tea is made out of yopon uh, which is a uh, like I wouldn't say invasive but it's a it's a it's very widespread almost weedy bush that grows in central Texas and so it's the only native plant in North America that contains caffeine and so that's that's what we make our tea out of uh, for our iced tea so if you order iced tea that's what you're getting you're not getting tea from you know, maybe North America, but probably Asia. Uh, so you're getting a locally sourced tea. And then if you need a lemon with it, we can help you out maybe three months out of the year. We'll have lemons. Um, and then some years we just won't. Uh, we've had some really bad ice storms in the past two years um, down here that have been pretty devastating uh, in general. I mean, they've, they've, they've destroyed uh, anything from agriculture to infrastructure. Uh, so, uh, things like that will really affect the menu as well. So like uh, iced tea with a lemon, which might be some seemingly very simple order, is, is not really that simple uh, at, this, at this place. So, um, but I think it's really fun to operate like that, whereas like, you're very limited by things a lot. And so it's, there are some challenges, but once you get into the routine and know what's coming up and what's in season, um, it gets to be a lot easier. I mean, I think I, I annoy a lot of farmers and, and people that sell us produce because I'm usually like four days before the blueberries are ready. I'm like, hey, what's up with blueberries? Where are they? And they're like literally coming in like two days from now. They're like, we, we'll have them, you know, but I mean, but I'm, I've gotten to get, or I'm able to be more tuned in uh, specifically to when all these things happen. And we know how much to buy and we know how to preserve, you know. So in the case of blueberries, you know, you want to you want to pickle them, you want to make jam, you want to dry them, you want to freeze them um, in bulk, you know, when they're at their peak in order to have that uh, for the rest of the year or for at least part of the year. Because there's going to be a time here in Texas where there is no fruit, you know, and that time is usually like... Um, early spring, late winter, uh, you have the, the dredges of, of citrus and maybe a couple of strawberries poking up here and there. But your pastry chef is going to be like, what, what do I do? What do I make? And I'm like, hey, you should have frozen more blueberries, I guess. Um, so it's, it's kind of a, it's a puzzle, but it's a really fun puzzle to put together. And that applies to everything. You know, there's, you know, you'll see the quality of beef change throughout the year. Or if we get in a, a lot of rain, you'll start to see some more fat put on from from the cattle and uh, you know all, all kinds of things can influence you know a hurricane can hit the the coast and then we you know we're, we're struggling to get crabs and, and black drum or the winds are too much and so we can't get fish uh, things like that so we're constantly dealing with it but 
Uh, like I said, it's really fun, but what it really boils down to is communication with the customer and being like, hey, this is what we do and this is why we have what we have. But we can usually put together a pretty robust menu these days based on what's available because there just is more available. And it's a really great thing to see is that there's just more business and entrepreneurship out there oriented around food, be it, uh, you know, people fishing in the Gulf, new farms popping up, uh, dairies, cheese, things like that. So it's, it's very promising, I think. That is, that is. And I love the fact that it really is, you know, just you communicating that about your restaurant that, listen, my menu is based upon what is literally happening today, tomorrow, and next week. I'm literally ebbing and flowing with the environment, with the conditions that we are getting. Yeah, those massive ice storms that you guys had, I can't even imagine what that would do to a citrus crop. I mean, just devastate that all the way out. And so simple desserts, like you'd think like, hey, just a a lemon meringue pie has become commonplace. But like, no, no, you don't get it. We didn't grow, we didn't have a, a lemon crop, so we don't have lemon meringue pie. And that's just to think about that as not only as a restaurant, but even as a someone at home. To not be able, I mean, yeah, we've got grocery stores and big box sport stores that can get things from, from every area, but to really live locally on your local ingredients can put that. It turns checkers into chess. Essentially, you got to be thinking four or five moves ahead. Is that half of your 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 staff then? Is that half of their puzzle as well? Is hey guys, we just had a big or there was a big order of blueberries, like you were just saying. And I ordered double just to make sure that we have them. They look great. We ordered double. Now we're going to preserve half of these. Is that what your restaurant staff, is that what you as a kitchen are thinking? Like, how do we make these products last, or how do we make these produce last longer? How can we find ways to use them? Is it going to be into syrups? Is it going to be in desserts? Yeah. And the, like, what, what would be some Absolutely. of the questions you're asking? Well, I mean, right now is a, is a key time because this is preservation season. It's also, it always coincides with our slowest time of year because everybody's on vacation. We're, you know, we're in Austin, so we're in one of the biggest college towns in the country. And so, you know, around summer, the city kind of empties out. It's also very hot. People don't love to eat when it's really super screaming hot. Uh, And so it gets really slow, but that coincides with peppers and tomatoes and garlic coming into season and all these things um, have a, not a short season but they they need to be purchased at their peak and they need to be preserved because you know we need to make uh, you know dozens of pounds of paprika so we are buying hundreds of pounds of ripe red Hungarian chilies from one farm drying them smoking them and then turning them into a powder and so that takes a lot of time. And so luckily, you know, we're not as busy serving customers. So our staff kind of pivots to this preservation. Cucumbers, you know, we need to make all of our pickles for the entire year. And this, this is not a fancy restaurant either. So we're making pickles for burgers. You know, we, we're, we serve a ton of cheeseburgers. And so all of the all of the dill pickles that go on each one of those burgers in December, January, February, March, April, May, June need to be produced right now. Um, and if we run out, we're in big trouble because we won't, we won't source them from elsewhere. So we have to make sure 
And so there are literal, we don't call them trash cans, but let's face it, that's kind of what they are. They're, they're very large um, plastic receptacles with lids and they're on wheels and they live in our walk-in cooler. And they, I mean, they're massive, 50 gallon, and they're all full of things like uh, bread and butter pickles, dill pickles, sauerkraut, things like that. And at the same time, we are um, drying pickling and preserving and canning tomatoes because, uh, you know, as soon as the first tomato crop, and we'll have two here in Texas, so we'll have a, a one that's peaking about right now, and then it'll start to fade, and then we'll have a fall crop that usually comes in September, October. Uh, and so or, oriented around those peaks when farmers have too many tomatoes and the price goes down, that's when we start to buy a lot of tomatoes and start to can those uh, so that we have tomatoes to make you know, whatever it is we need for the rest of the year. And so, yeah, everybody just kind of, um, you know, still is working. Uh, you know, we're not serving as many customers right now, but we are still in the process of preserving anything that we can. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I would definitely be one of those staff members you'd have to kick out of the cooler at least once a day because I am a, a dill pickle fan, and you would just have me dipping pickles out of the edge jar at different stages of salinity. I'm just checking, just checking to see how they're working, how they're coming along. That's fascinating because I think of just even like our August rush. Everybody's uh, in like early September. August and early September, everybody's gardens are blowing up here in Michigan, and we are just inundated, and you know people are giving away tomatoes. They're giving away zucchini. And it's it's that moment that they thought about preservation too late. <laughs> it's like we haven't got that part where we're we're thinking ahead, or at least people early on in gardening haven't quite thought ahead. I've got I, I got a couple friends who are just avid canners, and they they just know that that season's coming up, so they just keep accruing more and more uh, jars. But yeah, it always seems to catch up with a lot of people. Like shoot, just get rid of this bounty. But in the situation that you're in, you've really had to be able to think ahead and say, hey, I'm thinking of menu down the way. I, I want in these ingredients. So we have to be super proactive about that. Transitioning a little into your protein as well and kind of going along with that whole preservation thing of, you know, and again, getting things local is the idea of like a nose to tail. Um, I know restaurants in uh, in here in Michigan, they've really put that as a, again, like you said, it's it shouldn't be trendy, but you're finding in some of these larger cities that it, it is a trendy thing to be eating nose to tail. People are getting cuts and they're eating cuts of of beef or of lamb or of chicken that they normally don't get a hand, uh, ever to have. And they're really kind of getting the nuance of the animal. They're really starting to explore more about, well, when I think of beef, I think of you know burgers and uh, a sirloin steak or I'm thinking of a ribeye steak. But a, a cow or a beef is far more diverse than just those cuts people are now looking at the chuck as something desirable and as home as home cooks now or even guys that are out at the barbecue like brisket has gone from one of those pieces that we couldn't figure out how to use it to now they can't figure out where to find one because they're all bought up everybody wants to be able to get a hold of brisket how are you approaching protein in that way where are you also presenting different cuts and maybe introducing organ meat to customers just because this is what you have available? That's yeah, a great question. And then yes and no. I mean, really, we, we only buy 
uh, three cuts of beef. You know, we used to try to bring in um, halves or quarters. Um, we just couldn't make it work. It wasn't it wasn't viable. And then another thing that we realized, one thing that's really important, I think, is your relationship with farmers and ranchers, and and doing things that they need you to do as well. And so it it turns out that you know the way that we buy our pork and our beef uh, suits our ranchers really well too, because we'll buy mostly halves of hogs but sometimes we get a little backed up because we need we need the bacon and the chops the most so we need that middle section more than we need the shoulders and luckily there's another guy in town who does barbecue he takes all the shoulders and so we're not literally buying whole animals all the time i'd say the one animal that we use extensively is the chicken uh we we you know the, the heart's uh, we always have chicken hearts on our menu. We always have livers on the menu, and um, you know we sell we sell a lot of fried chicken only on Sundays though. But so we we do like it's a half of a chicken, and it's a small chicken, and we're really selective about that. Um, you know, in beef, you know, we're, it's all it's just all the hits. You know, it is it's just the ribeye and the chuck, uh, which we age and then grind, and then we make pastrami out of brisket. So not really anything like super sexy happening as far as as the, on the on the butchery side feral hogs however we will uh we take we buy a lot of trim uh from the processor so he's just taking the entire animals down and then we will also buy a lot of carcasses and at which point we if we can get some consistency out of them which is key i'm sure i i have a feeling you're going to want to talk about wild pigs at some point um it's typically uh, it's typically a topic that's presented to me, so we can circle back to that. But as we also use a lot of, of whole carcass uh, feral hogs, um, and right now we're buying a lot of uh, venison legs um, because that that kind of suits our current needs. Um, but in all these cases, it really kind of comes down to what is the what does the producer need? You know, what what's best for them? And we work with them, and they're like, yeah, well. You know, they've got a, a burger place, like a burger-specific place that's buying up most of the animal for grind. And so we can take those ribeyes, you know, and it does help out. Um, or in the case of our, our domestic pork, you know, it's, it's great for us to take basically the back two-thirds of most of those animals and leave those shoulders. Because then it also gives him another customer, another price point, gets his name out there a little bit more. And it gets that great quality pork out into the market, too, which, I mean, our, our pork producer is just impeccable. He's, he's the best pork I've ever had. And so I like to see it kind of spread out amongst other restaurants, too. And so we're not taking the whole animal most of the time. Sometimes we will. Um, you know, we, we do a lot with pork liver, things like that. We make boudin. It's a, it's a brunch staple uh, for us is, you know, liver sausage and things like that. But... You know, I don't know. I, I think that uh, the, the assumption might be that we are just bringing in whole carcasses and just breaking them down. But from a restaurant standpoint, that's quite difficult to make it work. Because if you think about it, like if you've got a foot race and the, the ribeye and the burger, then you need them to finish at the same exact time. Uh, you know, if you if, if the ribeye, if you're out of the, the, the 20 ribeyes that you're going to get off of that, that animal then you, you've got to sell 1,000 burgers in the same amount of time. It's not going to happen. And so then what do you do? You just don't have ribeyes. So that's why these, these you know, markets and cuts are set up. And, and as these 
producers get better at distribution and selling and, and, and diversifying what they have, you know, it's become easier to just go in and order the cuts. That is a unique perspective that I didn't even anticipate you even thinking of the needs and wants of surrounding restaurants and surrounding businesses. You mentioned your burger guy, your, your burger place down the way that they are going to be looking for a lot of the small or, you know, they're just going to be grinding everything. So you taking on the, the yoke of burden of saying, fine, I'll take the ribeyes that uh, <laughs> that's awful, awful nice of you. But to even like, but that in that perspective, the producers like, Hey, I have a spot where all of these cuts are going. I don't have to try and hold a, a few cuts for somebody. I am going to be able to then sell that whole cattle, that whole cow based upon the, the three restaurants that I have here. So that is a wonderful perspective that even if you are going to be, you know, you know, this is a business that's using local items, but even as someone who is living at home, how can I help out that neighboring rancher you know, maybe it's I've got friends that really that all they want to do is burgers. And so they're going to get that burger end and then I'm going to be able to take more of the steaks and roasts. And at that point, we can buy a whole cow rather than have to have the farmer half it or quarter it. That's just a perspective that I I, had, I didn't even anticipate seeing. So that's very intuitive. That's very cool. Yeah, I think it's, you know, also these relationships are they're very long term. And so we have a lot of communication with our ranchers and every once in a while we'll come up and be like, hey, listen, I've got a pallet of this cut left over. Or, you know, we had this batch of sows that got too big and so these loins aren't great. We couldn't sell them to you for this reason, but now we're backed up on that. You know, we have several hundred pounds of these these loins maybe they're too fat maybe they're too lean maybe this or that and so we know they're there and then they can come to us and then we're like oh hey we can help out with that you know and so it's it's just for me it's just relationships and having good relationships with these producers and you know we we've we've had you know this uh relationship you know buying and selling with many of these people for over 10 years and so it's it's just good to have that communication and then every once in a while they know what if, if they need to move something they can do it i think that like for a home cook or somebody that's at the farmer's market or dealing directly with a farmer or a rancher or any kind of producer is like if you if you go to them and and they're like hey this cut, you might not have heard of it. You know, it's like this, you know, let's just say short ribs. You've heard of short ribs, but let's say, you know, something that's not moving, you know, like the ribeyes and the ground is. And then a lot of times that's the most helpful thing you can do is just explore with them because, you know, a farmer's market producer might be on a much smaller scale where they're, they're dealing with one or two animals a month and then they can really get backed up on those off cuts. And so it might really help to go to them and educate yourself on how to cook them um, and, you know, just try to learn, you know, how can I help out in that way? I mean, it's going to be great meat, you know, so you know that, you know, it's just like, and it's a nice challenge. So I'd say that like in, in, in a situation like that, it could be a little different. You know, we're dealing with like medium sized producers that are, that are, you know, they're killing a few animals a week, you know? And so we, we have the luxury of saying, you know, we'll just take, you know, half of those ribeyes every week, you know? You also were alluding to an idea that, you know, as you were creating your menu and bringing in different things, you mentioned, A, the, the wild hog, um, but then you also mentioned that uh, you were getting venison legs in. Um, and, I, and I know in Texas there's there's a 
whole series of things that are going on down there that I think are probably unique uh, in the country as far as being able to get wild animals into a, a restaurant. I know for me to be able to shoot a deer and then somehow be able to get that deer into a restaurant isn't going to be very easy. In Texas, and I, I'm not sure how how into it you are with either the FDA regulations or even um, how these producers are working as far as uh, animals on their facilities, but you seem to have found a way to be able to get wild hog and to get venison into your restaurant. How, how is that able to happen? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I have to be very clear about that because our laws aren't that different than yours. Um, so let's just, let's just say in the case of a whitetail. So a whitetail is a protected game animal here in Texas. So we're not serving whitetail ever. Um, if it was farmed, uh, I, there, there would be a way around that, but we don't, we don't even deal with that. So when I say venison, I'm usually talking about, uh, an introduced species or an exotic, uh, which there's plenty of here in Texas. There's, and that's a very convoluted, uh, conversation as well about about what is what is wild what is native what is high fence what is low fence and so forth but I, i'd say that the there's three species that we really focus on in the restaurant that's the axis a deer the nilgai antelope and the feral hog and i'll just kind of go through that one at a time so the axis uh you know came over from india and has really pro- proliferated in central texas i mean to the point where you're you might see a few of them while you're just driving around like in certain parts of the state um to the west of austin especially um it's a very um very uh wealthy area there's a couple of counties out there that are like pretty pretty high income a lot of ranches and stuff like that and so these animals are, are somewhat protected by that uh by that that situation and that, and that they are able to, uh, kind of just be, be safe out there. I mean, they're hunted a little bit, but they've, they've managed, they managed to create their own populations and they're thriving in, in one way or the other. The Nilgai also, uh, you know, came over from India, uh, and that lives kind of on the coastal part of South Texas, basically Corpus Christi, which is about halfway down the coast all the way down to the border with Mexico. And the Nilgai uh, live down there and they're these very large antelope and we get a lot of those in as well. So those are mostly coming off of really large ranches also. Um, and both of these animals uh, are exotics, uh, non-natives. And so they can be harvested 24 seven, 365. Um, you know, they can be hunted at night. Uh, there is no limit on them. And so they can be taken um, in a couple of different ways. Um, we buy a lot of meat through a company called Broken Arrow Ranch, which distributes all over the country. Like you'll see restaurants in Chicago that are serving Broken Arrow Ranch meats, um, New York, Hawaii, everywhere. I mean, they are all over the place. It's a very, very high quality, high end operation. So they'll go in and they will either shoot or capture with net guns, things like that. Um, uh, these animals, and then they have this very, uh, I'd say, modern approach to processing them in the field. Where they have uh, trailers and ins- and inspectors. And they have USDA inspectors on site with them that are making sure that everything is done properly and chilled 
and they'll go and they'll kill 80 mil guy in a day and then bring them back to their processing center in central Texas and then age butcher and then distribute from there. And so they do that with both axis and nil guys. So the axis kind of coming from our West and the nil guy coming from our South. And so we're able to, I'm, I mean, I can place an order before 3 PM uh, for axis or nil guy and have it uh, at the restaurant the next morning uh, because their operation is just so slick. It's really cool. Um, so pretty much any cut. And so we buy tons of trim from them for sausage. Our breakfast sausage is made out of nil guy. We also buy whole legs that we age uh, and serve as tartare, uh, things like that. And we also do a nil guy steak. Uh, we have one on the menu all the time. So uh, just to be clear, yeah, no white tail, but we do these exotics. There's a few reasons uh, that I, I like the exotics. First off is they're invasive. You know, they're competing with natives. Um, the axis in particular can can be highly competitive with whitetail. People will tell you kind of different things about how how bad it is, but you are really seeing a lot more axis out there, and they're big. I mean, a big axis, uh, a big male axis can be over two hundred pounds easily, which uh, for a compared to a hill country deer, um, you know, a, a central Texas deer is is twice as big you know so our, our deer in central texas are quite small but our axes are quite large uh so yeah 100 100 120 pound uh white tail buck would be kind of large in in a lot of the state um and we have i believe one of the highest populations of white tail in the world in central texas they're everywhere um and then the nil guy can get up to four, five, six hundred pounds. They're very big. They're elk sized. Um, and both these animals, you know, are pretty competitive uh, with natives. And they're, they're also, like I said, they're invasives. So we need to control their populations. They also tend to eat very well, very organically, which is another thing that I'm looking for is, you know, I want as close to a wild game situation as possible. I want like a native diet um, you know, I want an unadulterated diet uh, for these animals. And so with those two species, we're really able to achieve that. Um, and then the third would be the feral hog. So that's a different situation there. So it's, a, it's classified as a swine. Uh, so it's, it's a pig. And therefore, it has a little more strict regulations around it. So they have to be brought into a processor and killed live. So they're, they're generally trapped. Not generally, they're always trapped uh, in different kind, different styles of traps. Um, right now, the, the trap that's in favor is that larger trap. It might be 30, 40, 50 feet in diameter and have a, a cell phone activated gate on it with cameras, things like that, where you're trying to trap the entire sounder, the entire family group of hogs. And so uh, people will bring in these hogs. Um, usually it's a trapper maybe they only trap hogs or maybe it's a side gig whatever so they'll bring them into the processor and at that point they are inspected before they're killed and after they're killed um, and since the hogs that we're buying specifically from our processor out in the hill country they're not leaving state lines they're just inspected by the state of texas uh, and so we'll get a carcass in that has a blue texas stamp or we'll buy lots and lots of trim things like that. Cause you don't know what size uh, a hog will be. <laughs> That's the thing is, 
you know, I can't really just like get on the phone and be like, hey, bring me four 75 pound carcasses and make sure they're nice and fat too, because that's, I mean, you might get two that are 20 pounds, one that's uh, 120 pounds and one that's 350. And they might all have completely different fat contents. They might come out of the same litter. They might be siblings and look totally different. Uh, so hogs are, you know, they're, they're, they're kind of difficult to work with in a, I'm not gonna say difficult. They're a challenge to work with a fun challenge to work with in a restaurant situation in that they are also independently unique. Uh, you never know what they're going to look like in the summer. They're going to be really lean. It's also very hard to trap them in the summer because they're, they do not tolerate heat. Uh, so a lot of trappers do not like to operate right now. Um, and if they do, they need to check their traps within the first hour of daylight. Otherwise the hogs are going to die. Um, because they're mostly not, they're, almost completely nocturnal at this time. And so they have to be, uh, those traps need to be checked and those animals need to be brought in before that heat kicks in, uh, cause it'll kill them. And nobody wants that, you know, obviously we want to kill them, but we want to eat them too. So, uh, you know, and also I think there's some ethical issues there, you know, we don't want them to suffer, uh, um, in any undue way, you know? So, and it's kind of uh, two two different pathways to get them into the restaurant. You know, your your venison, your antelope coming through relatively simple, uh, almost like a hunting situation, like a like a supervised chaperoned hunting, uh, you know, with the inspector on site, and then the the hogs that have to be brought in trapped. And once they get to us, they're fully inspected and they are ready to be served, however we deem fit. When in the field, accuracy and precision count. That's why we switch our slug guns to rifle barrels, tune our arrows, and use a fish finder on the water. But why should our drive for control end there? The Tappacue line of meat probes gives an instantaneous look at the temperatures of our prized meals, both internal and in the cooking chamber. Tappacue uses sturdy hardware made and assembled here in the U.S., along with their user-friendly, sophisticated software that connects to your smart device. Whether it's a traditional corded probe or the new cordless air probes that give you a wealth of freedom where wires would just get in the way. Adding a Tappacue meat probe can significantly help in getting to that medium rare on venison or waterfowl, ensuring your upland bird stays moist, or even charting your long cooks on a smoker. Visit Tappacue.com or find the link in the show notes and use the code HUNT10, all uppercase, at checkout to save 10%. Adding a probe to your kit can make you one tap away from your kit. Dry-aged steaks used to be a steakhouse-only indulgence. An old-world charcuterie was pricey due to being imported or created at a small batch-specific scale. Thanks to Umai Dry, their synthetic dry-aging bags and casings allow you to create these meat-crafting treats in your own kitchen. Working in tandem with your fridge, the Umai Dry bag material allows moisture and air to pass through, making it possible to dry-age large cuts of steaks or roasts. Paired with their curing and seasoning kits, along with safe and easy-to-follow instructions, salamis and dry sausage are well within your grasp. Use the link in the show notes and sign up for the newsletter to receive 10% off your order. Umai Dry, helping us elevate our wild game from the home kitchen. Yeah, that is an excellent um, description of of how that happens. So thank you for that. It's 
it's really neat to see how different ways are because that's always the big hang up is you need to get it into uh, a processing facility and there's got to be that inspector uh, that's on site if you're going to be USDA if it's going to go anywhere you're going to need those two those two things and so to have the mobile setup for the Neil guy in the access and then at the same time to have pretty much you know treating the wild hog as a domestic hog and the fact that it's going to get inspected inside that door of the facility and it's going to have the inspector there as well that's just a really neat way to use a resource that you said is it's a non-native and in many ways can be invasive um shoot the one one little critter i got right near us that affects our farm quite a bit is going to be uh the pigeon and these pigeons find their way over into my parents, or actually my brother's uh, grain system, and they love to just pick the grain out of the turkey, uh, out of the turkey feed. And if I'm not there every couple weeks to pop a few of these pigeons, we're just going to have a big, big loss of feed um, right off the top, even before it gets to the birds. And so it's amazing to see the, to be able to utilize something that's a, I don't want to say a problem, but to say something that's already on the ecosystem that's competing with natives to translate that into an amazing meal that people can enjoy. I think that that whole invasive aspect of being able to utilize it while it's here is a really neat thing to do. Um, and yeah, specifically with the, the hogs, you're right. We are going to kind of transition over to, to the humble wild hog. I went down with a completely open mind when I went down to Oklahoma. I've I've seen a ton of shows. I've seen all the stuff on the internet, how they're a problem. Um, I heard from close friends that, ah, you don't want to eat those because of X, Y, Z. Or you're going to be, if it's not castrated, you're not going to be able to eat this eat this hog. And I said, I'm, I'm going down with an open mind. I want to, I want to try and taste every bit of it. Just as you were saying, when I go to that farmer's market and I'm going to get something that I normally don't get in case of that short rib, I'm going to take it on as a challenge. I'm going to take it on as this is going to be a fun time to experiment, to really highlight something that isn't going to get highlighted. My experience in Oklahoma was nothing but pleasurable when it came to getting those wild hogs. Um... Yeah, I could see the damage being done on this cattle ranch. I could see when we were going out at night, I was watching large boars basically suck grain out of these troughs that was intended for calves at that point. And trying to, with just a rifle, and at quite a bit distance at night, because they were, they were really tending towards the evening uh, to come out, these things were hardy. These things were hard to bring down. They fit into that environment so well, so adapted to what they were as in as much as I wanted to say, again, I'm a visitor. I see them as a worthy, I don't know, adversary as opposed to something that's this, uh, this problem. But again, that's, that's me being a visitor. When I got to break into those hogs, I was so pleasantly surprised to see the quality of pork that I was getting off of these these hogs. It may have been a unique situation in the fact that I was getting these off of a cattle farm that A, had a lot of graze, and B, had a lot of grain that they were living 
the life. They were living the life essentially. They they had places to hide. They had places to eat. So they were they weren't going anywhere. They were feeling very comfortable. And I'm sure from season to season that's going that's going to change. But when you approach a hog, is it going to be something like you were just saying a little bit ago? I want you to expand on that. Is it season to season that you're going to be looking at those hogs to highlight certain parts? If you're getting a time in where you get a bunch of lean pork, are you going to be wanting to get uh, some additional back fat to just immediately grind that? Or are you going to find different ways to be able to utilize those those hogs differently per different seasons? Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the big question surrounding hogs. The big issue is just um, is how each one is like distinct from the other, you know, there's the consistency between, between hogs. And I think that's also what leads people to say, you know, you can't eat them, you know, make a broad, a sweeping com- comment like that. Oh, you can't eat hogs. And it's like, you can't eat any of them. You can't even eat that, that 80 pounder that's been eating acorns for four months and is fat. And it's just like probably one of the most delicious things you'll ever eat. Or you can't eat the one that's been, uh, you know, foraging on dead crabs for the last four months in South Texas and it's hundred percent lean and might be a little rough. So there's two different animals, you know, and I think that, you know, you, you have everybody kind of lump them all together. Um, I'm fascinated by the, uh, when you say, Oh, you can't eat them because of X, Y, Z is like, I need to know what X, Y, and Z were because uh, I've heard, I've heard it all. I've heard every weight limit. You can't eat them if they're over, 80 pounds. You can't eat them if they're over 100 pounds. You can't 120, 130. I mean, whatever random number you want to pick. Um, and and I'll, I'll be the first to admit there are some pigs out there that aren't going to be great. You know, that's absolutely true. Uh, but to write them all off is a real, real shame. And the situation you were in, while you said it was unique, it's always unique, though. You know, it's like every hog hunting situation is unique. And every hog is fairly unique. Like I was saying earlier, it's like even within one sounder, you might see a really large difference in fat content, um, the color of the meat, things like that, between even siblings. Um, And so hunting them off of a cattle operation, uh, you're like, oh, it's kind of cheating. It's like not cheating at all. I mean, basically what you're doing is you're hunting hogs exactly where they need to be hunting. It's where they're having a real drastic interference with an agricultural operation, which is like where you need to be killing these pigs. And if the side effect is that they have access to this forage and this grain and they're putting a lot of good fat and these are super delicious hogs, then that's a great situation. So, you know, yes, you know, you're fortunate over a situation where the hogs might not have as much to eat or which might change seasonally as well. Um, but yeah, I think that every situation is pretty unique and I'm glad that you were able to kind of dip your toe in, in a place like that, where, where the hogs are going to look pretty good. So yes, I mean, seasonally, uh, you can see a lot of, of change now in Texas where there's a lot of uh, deer feeders happening. So in October, October through February, we tend to see a lot of food being thrown on the ground here, a lot of corn, um, you know, voluntarily through deer feeding. And so they tend to start to put on a little fat at that point, And that coincides with uh, the acorn drop. So if you're in a part of the state where there's a lot of oaks, which is most of the state here, um, you also see them start to eat a lot of that. Um, pecans are another good uh, source of forage for them, but they'll eat just about anything. 
generally, and I'll use that word constantly when I'm talking about pigs, like generally or most of the time or, you know, because there's, there's no like real consistency to their behavior or their diet. Uh, you, you will see it kind of dip in the summer. And I think the best time of year to eat hogs, eat feral hogs would be late winter when they've when they've had a chance to put on a lot of acorns. And that's if they have access to food though, because if it's a really cold, harsh winter relatively here, then they could get a little lean too. But, um, but I think that like a lot of acorn fat uh, is really what you're gonna look for. So seasonally, yes, the colder months are gonna be better for hogs. The warmer months where there's uh, generally, here I go, uh, not as much food on the ground, you're gonna start to see them lean up. But, you know, I think it was a couple of years ago, I had a buddy send me a picture of a hog that he'd killed, and it was in July. Uh, and he's like, look at this, look at the fat on there. And I knew kind of vaguely where he was hunting, you know, up near a, a WMA, a wildlife management area, uh, north of Austin. And I, I was like, uh, you know what? I bet I know where you were. And he's like, how would you know where I was? And I'd be like, you're in that, that area around all the cornfields. And he was like, exactly. And I was like, that's right, because the, that pig has been eating fresh corn because uh, it was it coincided. You know, it was like early summer. So, it was, you know, probably around June when corn was just popping and these pigs were just walking down the rows eating fresh corn and tons of it and looking real good because of that. Uh, so, you know, there will be some seasonal variation, you know, like you but also you know, a sounder a mile away might not have access to those fields and it's still just rooting around eating blackberry roots and, and bugs or whatever, eggs, you know, ground nesting birds, you know, that's going to be on the ground right now. Turkey eggs, quail eggs, things like that, unfortunately. Um, you know, they're going to be eating snakes and, and lizards or whatever they can get their little snouts on. So um, it'll, it'll really vary drastically. And I think that, you know, when it was time to literally write a book about them, you know, I had to come up with an approach. And that's why I came up with the, the four hog approach. You know, we have small hogs, medium hogs, large sows, large boars, because the problem that I had been seeing um, or hearing from people about trying to tackle hogs was, was they were asking for like one umbrella recipe or one umbrella technique and be like, hey, what's your favorite way to cook a feral hog? And my question would be like, is it a seven pound piglet or is it a 300 pound boar? You know, because obviously one of those is gonna go on the grill and one of those is gonna be sausage. Um, so there's really no one answer for an animal like that. We don't see that uh, to that extent in game. Now, people might say, oh, I like younger squirrels versus an older squirrel because you can fry it. I mean, there's like, there's little subtle instances where that can happen. Uh, but like with the deer, I mean, you're probably shooting a mature, a mature deer almost a hundred percent of the time. It might be a doe, it might be a buck, but it's going to cook very similarly. It might be a little tougher if it's a ruddy buck or a bigger buck or this or that. Like, there's going to be some nuance in there, but not like when you're hunting pigs where that you, the pig might be completely lean or it might have a four inch fat cap on it. Um, 
And it might be, like I said, it might be a 25 pound carcass. It might be a 250 pound carcass because you don't know what you're going to shoot when you go out there. I have no idea. When you, I know you killed a pig in Oklahoma. I have no idea how big it was. Like if you're like, I killed a deer in Oklahoma, I'd be like, oh, it's probably, you know, 120 pounds ish, you know. You know, I would, I would, you know, be able to kind of guess, but I have no idea. You might have shot a piglet, uh, you, know, you know, a five pound piglet, or you might have gotten a monster out there, you know, a 350 pound pig. Um, so that's going to make quite a bit of a difference. And so I, I think that like trying to give people a really simple uh, kind of starting point uh, to, to just begin conceptualizing how to butcher and cook their hogs was was key and so you know when we wrote the hog book it was this is the the four categories just to get you started now there's going to be some variability within that you might find a big boar that's got an exceptional amount of fat you might find a big sow that doesn't uh you know it, it, it can be all over the place but you know we need to generalize just to get everybody started and i think it i think there's a good system Yes, because that was going to be my follow-up question that we that I was just going to have. That here you are now an author of a a, a cookbook essentially, or a how to handle hogs book, being the hog book. And you just alluded a little bit to it, like how do I take somebody to help educate them on on what they need to do, or what are things that they need to be looking for? And so, just as you're saying here, you know, given all of their variability that there is here. Let's at least start with, like you said, the four hog method. Sounds like it's very, uh, it's focusing on the size. That I'm going to have a young piglet, I'm going to have a mid-range uh, sow, and then I'm almost going to get to, uh, you know, the, the super pig or the big pig on the end being a, a large boar. And each of those cuts is going to have to take, or excuse me, each of those sizes is going to have to take a different approach to what you are hopefully going to be able to get edible on the other side. That's a great way to help people get a look at that, just based upon the variability that we've been talking about. Because um, I, again, I haven't had a chance to crack. I had to buy uh, some car parts, so that's where my that's where my birthday money went instead of getting the hog book. So I do apologize. I have not cracked the cover yet uh, of your book. Um, but folks, I, if you're into hogs right now, I would definitely be encouraging you to check this out. Check out that the hog book. You said you start out with four. Uh, four sizes and then from there are you breaking down do you have example recipes that are in there or are you giving people a general idea of like this is a direction that you should be looking how did you plan, plan to approach that? yeah well i mean the first part of the book is about like their history and hunting them and then the then basically how to field care like you know if you're gonna gutless method hanging field dressing things like that uh and then we break into four distinct chapters, um, you know, being the small hog, the medium hog, the large sow, the large boar. And then following each one of those chapters are the appropriate recipes for that size with, with an appropriate butchery sequence. So a small hog is easily broken down. You know, it's just like, you know, you just want to cut it into large pieces. You're not going to cut chops. You're not going to make sausage. You're not going to do anything like that. I'm talking small, you know, like a 20 pound carcass. Um, and there's how to get the most out of that more tender, uh, younger animal. You know, a lot of like braises, whole preparations, smoking them whole, putting them on a rotisserie, you know, cooking them in banana leaves, things like that. And then you get into that medium pig, which is, you know, kind of a more diverse 
array of cuts, you know, and what to do with the medium hog. And then you get into the, what I would classify as the best pig, which is the big sow. You know, they typically are larger. They have the most fat on them. They're in my mind, like the most palatable and you have just the best variety. Uh, you can make the most cuts. You can cut chops. You can do, sometimes you can make bacon. It might be thin, but I mean, you can make technically, or what would technically be defined as bacon, you know, like smoky, fatty, salty pork. Um, so the, a big sow, you know, and the, and the sow chapter is huge compared to the small pig chapter because there's just more to be done with it. And then we get into big boars. And so it, and then it's more stews, curries, sausage, things like that, you know, because I feel like there's some pigs I'll look at them and I'm like, that's sausage pig. Like every bit of that pig is going into sausage. The loins are going into sausage. I don't care. It's like it could just be on the thin side. Uh, just big or because it's going to be a big boar and have a bit more of an assertive, stronger flavor that I'm going to, I'm going to say, Hey, we're going to need to make smoked sausage out of this or chorizo or something that's going to really kind of be more compatible with the flavors of that hog. Adapting to the gainiest that's going to be coming out from that. That's a great approach. And I mean, just like Johnny Mercury said, fat bottom girls make the rockin' world go round. I could see why. The style chapter is the biggest. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yes. We have gotten now to the crescendo of our show. We have come down to the two-dish breakdown. Okay, this is it. Steaks cooked medium rare. Can I get my steak cooked? That want no question. You hungry? Hey, Ma! Can we get some meatloaf? We're Dean DeMochi and Skewer DeMochi. So, yes, we have come to the two-dish breakdown. This is where, Jesse, I'm going to give you basically two scenarios, and you're going to walk us through two dishes that you are going to make. So I might send you uh, a nice fastball right down the middle for an easy slug home run, or I might send you a curveball. You just might have to be on your toes for that. Are you, are you up for this challenge? Does anybody ever decline? <laughs> no, nobody ever declines. <laughs> okay, now I want to be clear. Do I do come up with two dishes from each challenge or one dish per challenge? I'm going to give you two challenges, and you just got to do one dish from that challenge. Okay, so all right. All right. The, the first one, uh, this one might be the curveball, and this one might mean, again, some variability. Uh, on my hunt in Oklahoma, my listeners will know that I, I tried to bring back as much of the hog as possible. I wanted to try and get every bit of that animal from the head all the way to the skin. I wanted to bring that back, and so I actually torched my hogs of the hair, did the best scrape job that I could muster up on my uh, novice side, and I think I did okay. And I've been graced with being able to have basically half hogs come up with skin on. I've since then butchered them up. But again, I've got all this pork skin. I know that there are things called chicharrones. I know that there are things that I can do, but I'm just, again, not quite sure how I can turn this wild uh, wild pigskin into something edible. What would be your approach to something of using the skin? The skin. Okay, well, that's a, it's a bit of a trick question because we typically don't leave the skin on. We skin them. Um, it's very hard to 
get the skin off where basically like when it's done in a domestic situation you're gonna you're gonna scald and scrape and you're gonna pull the hair out of the follicle when you burn it you burn the hair down to the follicle whereas you still have hair in the follicle um and it's burnt uh, so not optimal in my, and I'm just being honest right now, hey, not that's optimal in my, in my opinion. Um, but, uh, still workable. Um, so if you just have the skin and you want to make like classic chicharrones, uh, you're going to, uh, poach them first until they're tender. And then you want to take those and dry them. Uh, in the oven, like like real low, and kind of get them get them fairly dry after that, and then you're going to fry them at a very high temperature, probably you know 375, and that's when you're going to get that insane puff uh, from them, and uh, you know that nice crunch, and then they can be flavored. However, from there now now traditionally here, uh, you know in Central and South Texas, that'll be turned into a taco, and so that those those kind of chewy fried uh, rinds and a lot of times you'll see them leave a little bit of the meat on there um, not like scrape the the fat and the flesh off you'd actually just cut them into into pieces like in Louisiana that would be a crackling where you would have these just chunks of skin fat and meat uh, and then that would be stewed in lard until it got nice and crispy so a very similar situation so uh, I would you know go kind of a similar route uh, where you could just simply like cook those down and try to render the fat out of them until they're nice and crispy. And then that would be tossed in a sauce and then put it in a taco. So you cut them into like little, I mean, lardones or like, like maybe about the size of your pinky um, pieces. And then slow cook that until the fat started to render out. You want to get the skin tender, the meat part tender, most of that fat rendered. And then eventually that'll start to to become crisp uh, as the moisture cooks out of all that. So that's like, if you're familiar with carnitas, it's a very similar process, uh, but typically done with just fatty pieces of meat. But for the skin, that's what I would do. And then I would toss that uh, just to the very last minute so it doesn't get soggy, you're gonna toss that in a sauce. And you know, it, it's gonna be red or green, depending on the, the chilies in there. So like dried red chilies or fresh green chilies you know, onion, garlic, cilantro, things like that, a sauce, and that's going to go on a taco, and that's going to be fantastic. Um, you can also, of course, do other things with chicharrones. If you went the original route that I was talking about, where you dry them in the oven and then fry them at a high temperature, you know, uh, season that with salt and sugar and maybe dried chilies. I guess that's two. I'm giving you two. I was only supposed to do one, but uh, uh, bonus round. Um yeah, but, you know, it, it should be good. I, I would just uh, be extra sure that you're getting as much of that hair out of there as possible. Um, you know, because, it, like I said, it will be burned down to the follicle and there still will be some hair present. And I think that the, and I actually addressed this in the book. Um, I actually talk about burning the hair versus the scald and scrape. And, and you know, I, I think in most situations where people are hunting pigs, retaining the skin is... is like less than 1% of the time, like nobody does it because you, you don't know when you're going to be back. You don't have a pot of boiling water to scald and scrape or dip them in there for that matter. So it's just, it's really difficult. I mean, the, the main difference is, you know, in a, in a situation where you're killing a domestic hog, where you're going to save all the skin, 
you've it's scheduled. You know when Wilbur's going down. You know it's like, okay, Saturday morning at six thirty, we're gonna kill him. We need to have the water hot. But when you go in hog hunting, you're like, we might be back at midnight. We might be back at four a.m. We might not be back with a pig at all. And so um, I think it's just like logistically more challenging to get the skin. But there are ways to do it. You did it. Um, I uh, yeah, I would definitely encourage you to to try it out. I mean. Almost all my go-to recipes are going to be Mexican in style. That's just the part of the world I live in, you know. And also, I think that 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 culture has a very firm grasp on hog cookery. So um, that's my answer. Awesome, awesome. So yeah, go. I was thinking traditional chicharrones, and that's one thing that I need to dive into. I because uh, yeah, it was one of those things. Like I know there's three steps. I know there's a bunch of processes processes to this, and I think it's just knowing what I need to do. But even the lardone style of it where i'm going to be just trimming them up yeah they're going to be a little bit crisp but they're still going to be have that fat and a little bit of meat on them and throwing that right into a tortilla i mean you can't go wrong with that that sounds like a wonderful yeah. idea as well if i had to narrow it down to one i would say go the the second route where you, you're skipping the multiple steps you're leaving the, the the meat on there the fat and the skin and you're going slow and low. And that might take, um, that's three or four hours probably, very low. And you're also going to get a byproduct of lard out of that. So you're going to render a lot of lard out of there. I mean, depending on how fat the pig is. But, I mean, there's a chance to get some, some lard out of it. And then at the end when it's crispy and then you just go in and toss it. I mean, you could also, you know, toss it something sweet and sour. I, I'm going off too much. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm offering too much information. All right. Uh, anything we can get our hands on, Jesse, it, it is all good. Because, yeah, my last uh, breakdown here is you get to choose your own wild protein. And this might even be something that's seasonal that you're working on. But with us approaching 4th of July, we just want a summertime celebration meal for a group of people. And this is, yeah, this is the softball where it's kind of like, what are you working on right now as you're getting ready for uh, maybe a 4th of July rush or you've got a 4th of July gathering? What is something that you're going to be throwing together with something that is a non-native or something that is invasive or in that case, wild? Hmm. Okay. Well, I mean, my first thought, but it's not a non, it's a, it's a native. I would, I would, I would boil crabs. Uh, blue crabs. That's my. That's uh, one of my favorite things in the whole world. Is is catching and eating blue crabs. I love it. You know, we'll go down to the coast. Uh, we'll spend like three or four days running traps, and then just to have a big crab boil. Whatever's left over just gets picked, and then we have crab cakes and crab spaghetti, and stuffed crabs, and whatever we can you know make with that. Stuff it in flounder. Uh, blue crab would be my. I mean, it's just a great party deal, you know. I mean, just to get a bunch of people around and boil some crabs and potatoes and some feral hog smoked sausage um, and some green beans and some mushrooms and some uh, some peppers and some lots and lots of garlic butter poured over everything at the end. Uh, that would be uh, probably my go-to. Like right now, it's like I, I think I'm more oriented towards like fish and shellfish. You know, I, I think, I mean, if it wasn't a crab boil, I would... I'd probably be uh, just a straight up fish fry. You know, I love fried fish, uh, fried fish and fried potatoes and whatever sauces you want to throw on those things. That's pretty fun too. Absolutely, um, yeah. It's, so it's I mean, bluegill time around here. So yeah, it's good. Oh too. yeah, yeah, 
I mean, that's one of my favorite things too, sunfish. I love sunfish. I've, in the years past, I've had a commercial fishing license where I was able to go and catch sunfish for the restaurant, which is a pretty cool job. Um, I, but I really love uh, bluegills. And we, we've got a great population of sunfish down here. They get pretty big too. You know, we catch nine, 10, 11 inch fish somewhat regularly uh, down here. And uh, it's something that I really go after a lot, especially this time of year. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'd say, you know, a nice fish fry with uh, whatever fish doesn't matter <laughs> if it's saltwater fish, freshwater fish, I don't care. Awesome. Yeah, but yeah, that, that'd be my, that'd be my runner up. Well, this has just been a great hour to just get to pick your brain, Jesse, and to hear from you. Um, where can my listeners, uh, if they haven't already heard of you, where can they find you? Um, whether that's social media or website, um, and where can they get a hold of your book? Yeah, um, uh, I've got two books out. Uh, the first one is called A Field that came out probably 10 or t- 10 years ago, I think so. Uh, so A Field uh, is available on Amazon. That one's real easy to find. Uh, so just A Field, A-F-I-E-L-D, A Chef's Guide to Preparing and Cooking Wild Game and Fish, I believe is the subtitle. Uh, that's real easy to find. Uh, and then the hog book, uh, not as easy to find. Uh, so, well, it kind of is. Uh, we self-published the hog book, and so it's only available from a couple places. So uh, thehogbook.com uh, is a good one, and you can order it directly from us, and we will ship. Uh, it is available at the restaurant, um, and, and it is also available, yeah, uh, that's pretty simple. It's, it's very simple where, where you can find this thing. And it is also available on the meat eater store. Uh, so that is the only other online, uh, retail outlet, uh, that you can get it from. And it's, uh, so it's also very easy to order it from meat eater. Uh, so it's just under their store under books and you can get it there. And that's, uh, the hog book, uh, pretty, pretty simple and straightforward. Uh, the restaurant is Daidue. It's in Austin, Texas. I also have another uh, little food trailer out uh, west of town called Lo Salvaje. This serves more like bar food. We serve no guy burgers and wild boar tacos and fries, stuff like that. It's pretty fun. It's a, at a distillery. It's at the Desert Door Sotol Distillery. Um, and uh, my uh, Instagram, that's the only social media I do, and I'm also very inconsistent with it, is... Uh, as uh sacale so that's the that's the cajun uh word for crappie uh or i believe as you say crappy uh it's s-a-c period a period l-a-i-t and uh, that's uh, how you would uh, keep up with my adventures on the social medias well excellent excellent yeah whether it's crappie or crappy it's all the good fish so yeah that's i right. like the, i like your version Say it again, Sacoulet. 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 I I think I'm going to refer to them now as just that. Well, hey, Jesse, hold on for just uh, a few moments. I'm going to let our listeners on out. Folks, I hope you enjoyed this hour as much as I have. Um, Just gleaning information on how, how restaurants work and how, you know, our relationship with the environment, with the conditions that are happening and everything that surrounds uh, your environment right now can affect your food, whether that's a restaurant, whether that's you at home. All of these different things are going to come into play. And how, you know, 
maybe one animal comes in and you expect it to be a certain way and it comes in something different. Take that on as a challenge. Take that on as something to learn something new. Use it in a different way. Because, yeah, we as hunters and anglers were always presented with a new challenge when it comes to taking our food, killing the animal, and then harvesting the best out of it. It's going to be that challenge. But however you're facing that challenge, whether it's going to be blue crab and you're going to need to shuck the shell, or it's going to be taking apart a very large boar, whatever you're doing, make sure that your knife is very sharp.